Peace be with you. So Ash Wednesday marks the first day of Lent, which is a season focused on the sufferings and cross of Jesus. And because we are united to Christ in faith, his death on the cross cannot be separated from the cross that we are called to bear in union with him. So Lent just naturally becomes a season of remorse and repentance for the church as we carry our crosses together. Lent is a a 40-day observance that culminates in Holy Week, and it crescendos with Easter. And so these 40 days are significant because they are patterned after other periods of time in scriptures that also include the number 40. You'll think of Noah's 40 days and nights on the ark during the flood, Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering, Jesus's 40 days of fasting in the desert. So it's not a coincidence that all of these events have something in common with the major themes of Lent, namely suffering, testing, and repentance. And we begin Lent with Ash Wednesday when we impose ashes on our foreheads in the symbol of the cross. And you may be wondering why we do that, and it's a very good question. Um, Ashes play a very important role in Israel's sacrificial system. And there are several examples of people wearing ashes as a visible and tangible sign of their remorse over sin, as well as a sign of their grief and mourning. So the wearing of ashes really has very deep biblical roots. Ashes serve as a reminder of sin. They remind us of the death that we all deserve. As the words in the Book of Common Prayer stay, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. So when the ashes are placed on our forehead, they really do bring us literally face to face with the reality of sin and death. And so much like we anoint the sick with oil, the ashes can be a useful sign appropriate to those occasions when God's people wish to show their guilt over sin and brokenness in their mourning. That said, even still, many of us might be wondering, uh, what's the meaning of Lent? How, How does Lent help the church? And it's a good question as well. So for 2,000 years, much of the global church has organized her year around a calendar to recognize just the different seasons. So we can take a look at this church calendar right now. And as you can see what each season, we can see here what each season communicates. So the church year begins with the promise of Christ in Advent, which then gives way to Christmas when we celebrate the arrival and presence of Christ our King. But then we observe how Christ revealed himself and manifested in our world during Epiphany, and then we mourn his suffering and death in Lent, and then we celebrate his victory over sin and death at Easter. And then with Pentecost, which begins the longest portion of the calendar, we remember that the church is sent to call the nations to Christ, to call the nations to the light of the world. And so we rehearse this narrative every year. It's the narrative of the gospel, and therefore, at a macro level, as well as all the way down to a micro level, it shapes us more and more into the people of God. Each season of the calendar focuses on a a different part of the biblical narrative, and thusly a, a different facet of the Christian life. And so when we look at the calendar this way, Lent all of a sudden becomes very vital to the story that the church calendar tells. It becomes vital to our life as the church. So consider this, celebrating Easter without Lent is like celebrating the crown without the cross. 
It's to behold the glory of the resurrection without looking at the sorrowful summit of Calvary. And as, as a church, we want to do both. So we observe Lent in order to manifest and deepen our share in the cross of Christ, and we celebrate Easter in order to manifest and deepen our share in the resurrection of Christ. So Lent is really, it's only worth observing if we do so in light of an Easter joy that is coming. By observing the seasons of Lent and Easter, we are prepared and shaped to live out the rhythm of the gospel, dying to sin, and living the resurrection life of Jesus. Observing Lent every year, it tunes us to the broken beauty of the world. It teaches us to number our days so that we might gain wisdom. That's Psalm 90. We will know that we have kept Lent if we come to the end of these 40 days with a deeper faith in Christ crucified and a greater joy in the power of the risen Christ. But our own sufferings and self-denial are not the focus of Lent. The sufferings and death of Jesus are central, and we remember that our sufferings and death to self are derived from that union with our Savior who has already won our salvation. So the church calendar provides discipline, bringing us to look upon and experience truly the more unsettling, the more uncomfortable teachings of the word, but it does so in order that we might have a fuller and deeper joy when the celebratory seasons of the calendar come. These 40 days have the chance to mold us into a countercultural community unlike, really unlike any other in the world. But perhaps you might be wondering how, how Lent in particular makes us such a community. And you guys have great questions. Um, everywhere we turn, the world is tempting us to be unfaithful Adams and Eves. I looked at you, Adam, right then. I'm sorry, that, I didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> looked right at Adam in the face. Um, but everywhere we turn, the world tempts us to be unfaithful Adams and Eves, and our culture tries to convince us that we, that we need to have it all and we need to have it yesterday. Even as the church, we're, we are influenced by that culture. We're provoked to be hungry, really, for all the wrong things. But Lent can help us develop a taste for the fruit of the tree of life, for the, for the fruit of the cross. The history of the Bible turns on fasts kept and broken. In Genesis, God sets a banquet for Adam and Eve in the garden. Every tree of the garden, everything, including the tree of life, it's on the menu for them. Just one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not a complete fast. It wasn't a permanent fast. Eventually, Adam and Eve would have been allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge, and they would have been able to enter more fully into their royal rule over creation. But that means also that the garden and its prohibition were actually staged and intended for Adam and Eve's growth and maturity. They were destined for maturity. We could say something similar about Israel in the wilderness. God provides daily food in the form of manna, but he tells Israel to gather only what is needed for the day. Again, not a total or permanent fast, but one that was intended for Israel's growth and maturing and trust in Yahweh. And when Adam and Eve ate from the tree and broke that fast, when they broke the fast, they were cast out of Eden. 
And from Genesis 3 on, a more stringent fast was imposed on humanity. Now, no one is permitted to go back into Eden and to eat of anything. Not even the tree of life, much less the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And from Adam forward, history has been overshadowed by this fast. But Jesus, the last Adam, the true Israel, the picture of full maturity, had a right to eat of the fruit of life. He had a right to the entire garden. But he humbled himself and submitted himself to the fast of Eden. When he took on human flesh, he took on our unsatisfied hungers. Satan tempted him to seize the kingdoms of the world. He tempted him to tempt God. He tempted him to break his 40-day fast. But Jesus refused. Adam broke the fast. He was expelled from Eden. Israel broke the fast. They were kept out of the promised land. But Jesus keeps the fast, and he is restored. And his return to Eden is our return to Eden. Jesus kept the fast so that we might enjoy the Father's eternal feast. He sets the pattern of true fasting, and this reveals a Lenten way of life. God imposed a fast on Israel in the wilderness to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't command his disciples to fast. He just assumes that we will when you fast, he says. And as we read, as we read our final lesson this evening, Jesus predicts that his disciples will fast when the bridegroom departs. Jesus kept the fast, and he expects his disciples to fast as a part of their growth in God. Jesus, just to, just to call some of this, Jesus doesn't expect us to fast because food is evil. He made everything, and everything is created, everything created is good if we receive it with thanksgiving. Jesus doesn't expect us to fast because we need to be released from our sluggish bodies to live purely spiritual lives, just transcending all need. Fasting doesn't put God in our debt. It doesn't prove our spiritual worth. Jesus doesn't expect us to fast because he wants us to be dreary or downcast. Fasting is a physical expression of patience. Patience. And it's not just patience with food. It's patience with anything. Anything that we might acquire, anything that we might need. Whenever Solomon warns us about the dangers of rapidly acquiring wealth, he's warning us not to be atoms. He's reminding us to keep the fast, little by little, piece by piece, waiting, not grasping, waiting, not grabbing. That's, that's Lenten economics. It's restraint, but it's not permanent restraint. And when we exercise such restraint, we mature. Fasting nurtures hope. It nurtures patience. Isaiah tells the Israelites that they are to fast for the sake of generosity. This is the Lord's fast. This is what he says. Share bread with the hungry. Shelter the homeless. When someone's in need of clothing, cover them. Satisfy the desires of the afflicted. Give them the liberty 
that they long for. Be a spring of water in a very parched world. This is the Lord's fast because it's the fast that he keeps. He's the one who loosed the chains for Israel and Egypt. He's the one who let oppressed Hebrews go free. He's the one who broke the yoke of Pharaoh. He shared his bread with Israel in the wilderness. He gave them water from his very self, from the rock. This is Jesus. He clothed them with glory, he poured out his spirit to refresh his people. In other words, the fast of the Lord is not one that, that's just restrained. It's one that supplies. Putting this all together and kind of closing this portion. According to our text this evening, fasting is not simply an abstention. It's a pursuit of maturity and wisdom. It's not just about giving something up. It's about taking something on. In fasting, we lower ourselves and pursue maturity in Christ. We humble ourselves and we ease the burdens of other people. You can see the whole law in that. Adam and Eve's fast from the tree was meant for their maturity, but they also served one another in the process. So as you consider, as we consider together what we might do for this Lenten season, I want to offer just a few options, and we'll send this out to the rest of the church just to aid along the way, just some, some things to get us thinking, get us wondering, get us talking with God and one another about what we might do in this Lenten season. And I would, I would encourage you to transact with the Lord over this. Pray, ask other brothers and sisters as you consider what God might be inviting you to give up and take on in this season. Here are a few ideas. It might look like a fast from social media while you also pursue a new or deeper relationship with one of your coworkers or neighbors. Perhaps as a family, you might fast from going out to eat and in its place, you could consider inviting one of the single people in your life over to your house for dinner. Maybe you fast from one meal a day during the day, and while you're fasting, you pray for the people of Russia and Ukraine. You might fast from coffee for Lent, but during the day, you can call one person in your parish to pray with them over the phone, share a scripture to encourage or strengthen them. Because each, in each of these examples, we forego something in the pursuit of maturity and we seek the rest and joy of other people. Just to illustrate this a little bit more, I want you to remember the beloved film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. We don't know it from the outset, but Wonka is hoping to find a mature child to run his factory, and so he opens every room of his candy kingdom to a group of adolescents. But none of the children are able to restrain themselves. They want it all, and they want it yesterday. Adults, too. And everyone, everyone in the movie, almost, becomes a greedy, little, entitled child. It's Charlie who shows real maturity as he gives back the everlasting gobstopper. <laughs> he goes without, 
and it reveals his growth. He eases the burdens of his family. And in Christ, we could find Jesus has already done all of this for us and for our world. He has fasted so that we could feast. He has taken on our burdens to give us rest. We are what we desire, but our disordered appetites and desires move us toward impatience, self-confidence, greed, selfishness. Fasting conforms our desires to theological virtues, to God-like virtues. As we suffer hunger in faith, hope, and love, the Spirit shapes our hungers into a hunger for God. Fasting deepens our maturation in Christ. Lent gives us the only answer there is to the problem of evil, a cross that triumphs over evil, a death that tramples death. And for the bride of Christ, for the church, death is not an end, but a beginning. It is the breath between life and life everlasting. May this Lent be most fruitful for us, sojourn. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.